Bow in prayer with me for a moment this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being here this day. We thank you for each individual that you and your sovereignty have brought here this day. We thank you for your word and for what you can teach us and for your Holy Spirit who indwells us, for our brothers and sisters we can fellowship with. Help us never to take any of this for granted. We look forward to what you have for us this day, our Father. There's so much, there's so much in your word that you would have us know. We just have just but a taste. And Lord, as we look at these verses this day, teach us. Help us to have teachable spirits. Ones that come ready to learn and to listen. Help us to be able to listen well and to remove the other thoughts that tend to clutter. Father, speak through me. May it be your Holy Spirit speaking directly to our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever had this situation, in fact I bet most of you have, where you are on one end of a cell phone conversation from someone sitting next to you, maybe on the L, maybe in a store, I had that once, I was in a hardware store, and I was about to go in the tool aisle, my favorite aisle, to look, just to look, just to look, and there was somebody standing in there, and she was having a conversation with someone who she knew very well, talking about her son, her brother, and everyone else, in just a few moments, I didn't stop, I wanted to stop, but in the few moments that I passed through that aisle and passed by her, I knew more about her personal life than I ever, ever wanted to know. Maybe you've had that situation where you've been kind of listening in on someone's conversation. Well, we have that today, but in a good sense, from John chapter 17. Because we're listening in on a conversation that Jesus is having with his heavenly Father. And we get to hear one side of it. And in doing that, in doing that, it reveals Jesus' heart. We learn much of who he is. Not only that, but we learn of God's heart as well, just from this conversation. And I believe, you know, growing in our understanding of God's heart draws us deeper into under our understanding of God himself, which, by the way, is his desire and quite frankly, is the need for every Christian that ever lived. And as for me, as I was studying John chapter 17, and uh, way back when, when I had, I had submitted the passage to, to Eric and, um, and so forth and described what I was going to, to be reading through, uh, sounded good, John chapter 17, until I got into studying it and realized this is way too much just to cover in just a few minutes we have together. It's kind of like you might have had this experience where you look into a passage of Scripture and realize you need to come back to it a few times, and then a few times more. Like, um, here's, here's an illustration. Like, you're, you're in the woods, and you're, you're uh, walking deep into the woods, and you come to this cave. You see this small opening. You come to this dark cave, and you poke your head in, and you shine your little, little tiny little flashlight in. You can see about ten feet, but you know that that probably goes for miles and miles but all you can see is that first few feet. That's what I felt like as I was studying this. And the more that I studied, the more I realized there is 
So much, so much in this one passage that we have to learn. We're just going to touch on some of the, some of the highlights today, and as you read through it, and as you hear it read, my desire isn't so much that my words are going to somehow penetrate, but God himself, through his word, through John chapter 17, that those words will reach into your heart. There might be something in there that God has for you this morning, and I'm not going to say a word about it, but God's Spirit does, and it's going to come through John chapter 17. That's my hope. That's my hope. Well, the setting. We need to look and see where it falls in Scripture. Um, This is towards, towards the end of John, and... This is towards the end of a very, very lengthy discourse that begins back in John chapter 14. Now, if you uh, were to review that, you would see that just before this happened, Jesus had spent some time eating a meal with his disciples. This was in the upper room. They had their last meal together. He washed their feet. And then they were going to head to the Mount of Olives. This prayer may have taken place in that upper room or it may have taken place on the way to the Mount of Olives, or the Mount of Olives itself. I'm not sure. Uh, but somewhere in that um, time frame, and it was, uh, keep in mind, this is just hours before Jesus' death. So this is the setting. Uh, these are kind of like the last words um, that Jesus leaves for his disciples. Other gospel writers uh, included much, in fact, well, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, included much of Jesus' public life, John, in his record, if you were to read through it carefully, you'd see a lot of Jesus' private life. John emphasizes private life. And here's the prayer, the longest prayer in the New Testament, recorded for us by John. And for Jesus, it might have been something like a a parent seeing his children off. You might have done that, send them off to kindergarten, send them off uh, to college, maybe off to the armed forces. Um, You know, be careful. Text me when you get there. Don't text me on your way. Text me when you get there. Um, and Jesus was kind of saying to the disciples, this is, this is what I want you to hear. I want you to hear this prayer that I have for my Father. And what it comes down to is this. It illustrates, this prayer the whole, as a whole, illustrates how the depth of Jesus' prayer life coincides with the depth of the relationship he had with his Heavenly Father. And the things that Jesus prayed for are the things that matter most. Let me repeat that. The the prayer illustrates how the depth of Jesus' prayer life coincides with the depth of the relationship he had with his Father. And the things that Jesus prayed for are the things that matter most. He was very intentional about making those last moments count. He wanted to convey to his disciples, I think, as a whole, and not just in this prayer, but in his whole life. He wanted to convey that there should be a deep yearning in each of our hearts for God himself. What does he want from us? Who is God? And if we listen carefully, I think, to this very intimate conversation, we can, we can come to an understanding of how Jesus pleased his heavenly Father in what his deepest desires are, and it's all there in John chapter 17. I'd like to read through it, um, beginning with verse 1, and I'm going to divide this into three sections. first portion is verses 1 through 5. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. First section, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for himself. And the key word in these five verses is glorify. He prays for himself, and he says, glorify. Now, this is sometimes we, we think a little awkwardly of this, you know, praying for myself. Isn't that kind of selfish? Shouldn't I be praying for all those other people around me? They really need all the prayer. Well, no. Think of what his, what his prayer was. His motive was to bring glory to God. And if we're praying that for ourselves, there should be no end to that. Because the prayer for ourselves, and it was for Jesus as he focused on himself, was, may glory be to God. That's what he was praying for, for himself. May I glorify you. And he speaks to Father, a person, not just some object or creation of his own imagination. This was a person he was talking to, his Father. And he says, the hour has come. This is it. The pivotal point in time when, when God chose to intersect in time and space with humanity. And that is something our, our minds, you know, our feeble minds cannot even begin to comprehend the vastness of that statement. The fact that God chose to intersect time and space and actually connect with mankind, his creation. He chose this small planet over the millions on which to place mankind. Now, we don't have time to go into depth, but, but the hour was now. Now, back in John chapter 7, uh, Jesus says, the hour has not yet come. If we were to probe even deeper, we'd see something like in, in the book of Galatians, where Paul writes, uh, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son. See, the hour has come when Jesus makes this statement in John uh, chapter 17, is saying, God, you're sovereign, and this is your hour. This is your time. And it's a recognition of God's sovereignty, even over him, the Son of God. And I think in, in our prayers, as we pray to God, I think there needs to be something on our part where we are consistently acknowledging God's sovereignty. This pleases him. And it helps us remember that he's in control. Sometimes we use the phrase, give it over to God. He already has it. He does. It's like, it's like if I were, if I were uh, uh, riding a roller coaster, if someone was riding a roller coaster, gets off at the end, gets off a platform... It says to the person next to me, I'm a good driver, huh? Got us through those twists and turns and ups and downs. I'm good at driving. The person looked and said, okay, uh, be careful of that one. Because somehow we think in our lives that we are the ones that are at the controls. And there are choices that we do make. And God in his goodness does uh, allow us in different ways as we uh, commit our, our will to his. But the bottom line is God is sovereign and he is in control. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. That God is sovereign. And I know we've used that, that, that phrase before. Um, and I'm going to give God control of this situation. Just when I say, he already has control. He's, he's just waiting for us to recognize and acknowledge and submit. 
Well, he says glorifying, verse 1, and this is the first of two imperatives uh, in this short passage, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, he says glorify, and in verse 5, the petition is glorified. Jesus' primary desire is for God to be glorified whatever form that might take. See, for us, applied in this way, it doesn't mean that on this side of heaven, at least, we experience the easy life. We know that. For God to be glorified means that all attention, worship, and affection is pointed towards him, regardless of the circumstances. And so when Jesus was praying this, knowing what was coming down the road in just a few hours, he was saying, God, you be glorified. It means his death, but God be glorified. Not that we look for and invite pain in our lives, it's not, not what I'm talking about, but it's mainly that we are recognizing God's sovereignty and wanting him to be glorified. And as I read this whole chapter, and in fact, it's not just this chapter, it's all of the Gospels, it's, but, but this is very much an intimate conversation within the Godhead. It kind of struck me as, um, you know, recorded as best humanly possible, okay, recorded by John, um, written in Greek, translated into English, tra- uh, interpreted by us. Uh, it's, in some ways, I want to know what that conversation really was, because we are quite removed from it, 2,000 years. Uh, but it's a very, very intimate conversation. And verses 1 through 5 is also, I believe, one of the strongest affirmations of the deity of Christ. Uh, he was not a god. He was not one of God's offspring. He was not a holy prophet. He existed with God before the world began. That's hard for some to swallow. But quite frankly, you may have heard this expression. It's an old expression. I believe it was Josh McDowell that started this. He's either a... If he, well, somebody says that, I'm, I, I'm, I existed with God before the world began. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. There's really no way out of that. Some, some who say, well, Jesus was good, uh, just a good man... Well, then why did he say that I existed with God before the world began? He's either he's one of those. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or you have to believe that he's Lord. Verse 4, he says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is what brought God glory. Now, granted, this struck me. I circled this in my Bible, having accomplished. Because you think about it, the three years that he was there, uh, there were a lot more sick people to be healed. He didn't heal everybody. Uh, there were a lot more souls to be saved. But Jesus did what God sent him for. Nothing more, nothing less. He accomplished what God wanted him to. Some total of three years of intensive work, what was accomplished? Well, that was three years. Compare that to uh, four years in college. You study, you gain all of this knowledge, and you have a piece of paper to prove it. Or maybe uh, you're in many years of ministry and you have thousands of conversions. Jesus had 12 men. One of whom gave himself over to Satan, betrayed Christ, and then went out and committed suicide. Another one denied even knowing Christ. One doubted that he was actually alive. And all of them, at one point or another, abandoned him, going back to their jobs. And he says, I finished the work. Because it's what God called him to do. And if there is anything indicative of Jesus' success in completing this task of the three-year endeavor, his birth, his life, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, it is the fact that his father was, 
is and will be glorified. Sometimes we get hung up on the stuff that we think we have got to be doing for God. And sometimes we add to that list and think that somehow there's got to be more in there. I don't know. What did God call us to do? We do that. And the bottom line is that God is, was, is, and will be glorified through us. That's what Jesus wanted. At the end, for Jesus at least, there's no marching across the stage to receive some gleaming trophy to thousands of screaming, adoring fans. Uh-uh. His, his reward was different. Brutally nailed to a cross, dragged down, put in a dark tomb. And he said, that, my father, is that what brings you glory. Because on the third day, he came back to life. He lives in heaven. But not, but see, see our, our version of success, go back to that word success, has got to be, you know, all the, the flashing lights, the red carpet, that was Jesus' red carpet. So backwards for us to understand what God's glory is, what he wants from us, and what is due to him. Jesus entrusted himself completely to God's sovereignty. He said, if that is what brings you glory, my Father, and so be it. Let's move on to the second part. That was uh, glorified. And then verses 6 through 19. I'm going to pray for someone else here. Jesus says, I have manifested, this is verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and as the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the second part of Jesus' prayer. first part was he prayed for himself, and the key word was glorify. second part, he prays for his disciples. The key word is sanctify. Prays for his disciples, sanctify. Very much concerned that God has taken care of them and that they are set apart in his absence. It's not, not one of those... I'm out of here in a few hours, God, and just get this over with, and I can be back with you and done with this. No. Very much concerned about his disciples and praise at length for them. He says, I have manifested your name. I reveal, when he says that in Scripture, your name, that means God's nature. He has manifested God's nature. 
uh, to the people that you gave me out of the world. Jesus' whole reason for coming was a revelation and redemption. That's why he came. And he says that all are yours. Towards the end of the passage, he says that all are yours. And that includes us. Very comforting for us to know that we belong to a compassionate and loving God. Verses 7 through 8, he says, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. This is a both and. It's an intellectual grasp, and it's a choice of the will to believe and accept. The disciples were in the process, and so are we. It's a journey. We accept God's gifts of salvation, even though by faith, even at the beginning, we don't fully understand. We're coming into an understanding of who God is, just as his disciples were. This is why Jesus said that he had accomplished all his Father had given him to do. In verse 4, of all the things Jesus did here on earth, this was the keystone, the, the main point, most important thing, the reason for all those miracles for the years of ministry, that they would know that they would receive the words and they would come to faith in him. Well, who is he praying for? In verses 9 and 10, I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. He basically says, all of them, since they are yours, they are my glory. His disciples, his followers, were his glory. Now, often we will say, uh, we'll look at God's creation somewhere, we'll see some mountains or planets or tiny fingers on a baby and say, wow, God is great. Well, here he's saying that his people, his followers, us, your brothers and sisters, look around you. That's God's glory. And at the end of time, we're all going to be standing before his thrones, singing, saying, holy, holy, holy. And God will say, that's my glory. We, his followers, we, his believers. Verse 11, the first of the imperatives, the petitions in this section, he says, keep them in your name and the fault what follows that they may be one even as we are one very secure place to be kept as children of God compare back in John chapter 10 verse 28 where Jesus says I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand very very secure place to be we're safe there in Ephesians, it says we are sealed. Well, some have a problem with it. Some will say, well, sometimes. And they'll say, well, it says no one will snatch them out of my hand, but I can jump. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know if you ever, ever had anyone say that to you or not, but let me, let me set the record straight. We didn't jump in to begin with. Okay? Because if we said that, then we would have done something to earn our salvation. And that's not true. If anything, God took us and put us in his hand. It's not a case of us jumping out. We can't. We're there secure. Sealed. And when he says keep, that's what his prayer is. God, keep them. And that's for us as well. Verse 12, he says, None has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. We know who this is. We know who he's talking about. This is Judas. Judas had just left a few hours before, or less than an hour before, perhaps. 
Um, we need to make be clear that Judas was never a believer. John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus says, did I, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. See, Judas passed himself off as a follower of Jesus because he did just that. He followed. He wasn't a believer. And because of that, he didn't lose his salvation. You know that applies today? You know there are some who are just followers? can't always tell. Look at, the disciples spent three years with this guy. He was a follower all three years, but he wasn't a disciple. See, there's a big difference. Coming to church, sitting in a chair, listening to a sermon every Sunday, can make you a follower of Christ. doesn't make you a believer or a disciple. And believe me, either, either some, some would intentionally try to mislead others in, how, in, making, in helping them or making them think that they indeed are a disciple, or some just out of ignorance. Whether it be intentional or ignorant doesn't matter because both have eternal implications. Don't just be a follower. Be a disciple. Both mistakes have eternal implications. Back to verse 12, he says, Keep them, not one has been lost. Did God answer this prayer? Think ahead. Okay, Jesus is praying this just before his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He's saying, Keep them, not one of them has been lost. What happened to the disciples? Almost all of them were martyred. John himself was exiled on an island. See, too often, we choose a faulty interpretation of the word keep. As though somehow keep means help them to be safe and secure with no problems and nothing happening to me or the ones I love. So if we think that, then somehow God let Jesus down. Because look what happened to the disciples. Not true. Here's the definition for keep. It means that a life, it means a life that always brings glory to God. Simple. See, his purpose for the disciples meant a home going for each of them in his time and in his way. And when Jesus said, keep them, God answered that prayer. That's God's definition of keep. That would be securing him, no matter what he chooses to do with us, with those around us, we are kept secure in him. That's a comforting thought. So much can go on, but we know that we are kept in God. Verse 13, he says, May they have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now this, this is a, just a short reference in this chapter, but if you were to cross-reference that back to uh, previous chapters, you would see that, that that word pops up a number of times, the word joy. In um, chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The context in that whole chapter is abiding. And so, we can put a little equation in there. Being obedient equals joy. And so when Jesus is referencing joy in this prayer, disciples knew exactly what he was talking about. Chapter 16, verse 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, praying in his name means praying in accordance with his will. 
That's what praying in his name means. And some, I know, this, this is difficult. Believe me, God knows this too. He's so gracious. Because a life of, of joy is a life of obedience. And isn't that what every one of us struggles with? Is it walking in obedience? I think most of us would like to just simply selectively obey. Because there are, for all of us, there are different areas where we struggle in our obedience to Christ. But he says he wants our joy to be full. Fully following, completely devoted as a follower of Christ. Verses 14 through 19 breaks down into three subpoints. He's praying here again, he's praying for his disciples they would be saved, verse 15, sanctified, verse 17, sent, verse 18. Saved, sanctified, and sent. Verse 15, it says, keep them again. And think back to Luke chapter 22, where Luke records a a conversation that Jesus had with Peter. And Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. This was the one who denied Christ. And, and believe me, so many times we think, you know, Peter, how could you do that? Go in and deny that you even knew Christ. The moment we think that, that's when we're at risk. Because every one of us is susceptible to that same temptation, and it's called evil. And when Jesus prayed, keep them from evil, he knew what he was praying. Because we need that prayer too. That we be kept from that evil. From denying Christ or from the evil one. Verse 17, he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. First I said saved in verse 15, sanctified in verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. This is, as far as the disciples being set apart, consecrated holy to God. How? In truth. Your word is truth. Jesus knew exactly what was needed for his disciples to be set apart. And that was them going into God's word, knowing God's word, living God's word. Um, In our mosaic on Monday nights, we are studying Psalm 119. Yes, it's taking us all month. (laughs) And almost all of the 176 verses in there have something to do with God's word. And understanding it, and not just memorizing it, but becoming part of our lives. Jesus knew this, he prayed this on behalf of his disciples. Basically, what we need to pray is, Lord, let it infect and influence my life so that I truly, truly can bring glory to you. Not just behavioral change. We as Christians can fake that, unfortunately. Not just walk away feeling good, thinking good thoughts. That's just by itself an emotional change, reaction. And not just having learned new truths about God. That's good too, but stand alone, that's just a mental assent. No. Being a, understanding God's word in such a way that it, it's a deep, true transformation of my deepest self that will inevitably change my behavior, my feelings, and my understanding. Digging deeply into God's word and understanding it, that's what Jesus prayed. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. 
And then in 18, he says, send. We said, saved, sanctified, and sent. If indeed this is a commission for all, and I believe it is, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, what am I doing about it? He sent them into the world. He sent us into the world. We are sent. We say, oh, no, no, that's, <laughs> you don't understand. That's for missionaries and pastors and those people. No, no, no. If I'm a believer, I'm sent. Well, some of us, unfortunately, think we're in covert operations. CIA, I'm sent, but don't let anybody know, okay? It's not the case. We're to be sent, and the people around us are to, are to know that we indeed are sent. In all of John chapter 17, and you know what, I, again, this is, I'm referencing all of the Gospels. You study Jesus' life, and this is one thing you find out. His worship and his work were inseparable. Very important for us to understand. His worship and his work were inseparable. Jesus' work was a manifestation of his relationship with his Father. His relationship with, with his Father was manifested in his work. Let me repeat that. Jesus' work was a manifestation of his relationship with his Father. His relationship with his Father was manifested in his work. And I'm not talking about us trying to do things for God. It's not what I'm talking about. I think too much in our attempts to serve, we miss the aspect of worship. Worship must come first. If we are worshiping, we will work. We will serve him. I, I, get these, I, I read these articles sometimes of uh, you know, how, to, how to increase volunteers in your church. Volunteerism. And, and, and dangle this carrot and do this thing and, and all this kind of thing for volunteers. And well, No, no, no. If we're worshiping, there's going to be a response. And sometimes I feel, not just this church, but any church where there are some who just sit and fill a chair and I want to say, you know, I don't question salvation. I know they're saved, but to tell you what, I do question their worship. We better move on. It's getting personal here. John um, chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself, glorify. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples, sanctify. Verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for future believers. Unify. Jesus prays for future believers. 
unified. Jesus knew what he was praying for, didn't he? Now think of it. Think of all the struggles that we've had over the centuries to be unified. Jesus knew what we needed. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus says, By this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's what brings us together. Uh, there's a, there's uh, some related terms, and uh, commentator Merrill C. Tenney, in his book on the Gospel of John, writes this, the four related terms. Unanimity is the absolute agreement of opinion within a group. Unanimity. That's a ship is sinking and everybody wants to get to land. Everybody agrees on the same thing. It's illustration. Uh, uniformity. Complete similarity of organization or ritual. When I go to the Philippines and, and worship in an in a evangelical church there, we have much of the same, very similar things, songs we sing and, and our worship. A union is a political affiliation without necessarily individual agreement. That's like the United States of America. Fifty states, we don't all agree, but we're part of one union. Unity, however. Oneness of inner heart and essential purpose through the possession of a common interest or a common life. This is what Jesus prayed for. Unity within the body of Christ. The whole body, the church universal, and within the local body of Christ as well. He knew. He knew what was needed. Unanimity of belief does not necessarily mean uniformity of ritual. Uniformity of ritual does not presuppose organic union. Organic union does not guarantee unity of the Spirit. See, we're to be unified, first in our common devotion to one God and one Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to an intentional seeking after common goal and common plan, which is glorifying God by encouraging and exhorting my brothers and sisters in Christ and being faithful to sow the seed among unbelievers. So much more in this passage. Um, the fellowship that we can have with God, our eternal state. Too often I think we just think of our time here on earth and that's all. And Jesus kind of opened it up just a bit for us in John chapter 17 that there is so much more. We know so little. We just have these small glimpses of what eternity is going to be like. See, sometimes I think uh, we live this life oblivious to or ignoring eternity. We don't even want to think about death. It's scary. We'll be separated from our loved ones. But our focus, our mindset, our faith and belief should be on eternity. Our life here is so brief. Living out these few years in light of eternity should drastically change who we are, our motives, our behavior, give us a peace and a joy that goes beyond our, even our own understanding. Suppose I, were to, suppose I were to go to college and spend my four years there without any thought as to what comes after. I'm just going to make sure I've got a nice dorm room. I'm going to make sure I have a lot of fun with my friends. I'm going to get the A's. And then what comes after? Oh, I don't know. I want to think about that. That's a very short-sighted. Four years. Come on. Well, sometimes we do that. We spend the life, this life here just thinking about this life. There's a long eternity ahead of us. In fact, it's not, it's not that, well, I'll wait until then. You know what? For believers, this is eternity. This is eternity here and now. It isn't, it isn't that death begins eternity. If we are 
uh, part of Christ's family, one of God's children, eternity is here and now. And there does come a point of death where this human body ceases to exist and we spend time in glory, but that's all seamless, that's all one eternity. We can rest assured in that. We so become so consumed with the here and now that we forget that this is just preparation for what lies ahead. And this, this is the essence of Jesus' prayer in all of John chapter 17. See, we get, we get the idea that, well, I, I, I need a good, my good education, make sure my kids get my good ed, a good education, uh, make sure I've got a home, make sure I've got my retirement set up and everything, and, uh, and what we used to say, all your ducks in a row, uh, make sure it's all taken care of, as if that's all there is. There's so much more beyond this. And yes, we need to be good stewards of what God has given us. But we need to do it with a mind for eternity. Well, I asked myself, what can I learn from this passage? And I'll tell you that the list just kept growing. So I'm not going to try to tell you everything. Um, and as you read and study something like this, like John chapter 17, you can see that. There's so much in there. Um, I mean, one of the very basic facts is God is sovereign. And that's, the whole prayer is about Jesus recognizing God's sovereignty in his petitions. In his asking God for things, it is a recognition of God's sovereignty. I also learned that you could ask for a level of intimacy in my fellowship with God, including but not limited to my prayers. John 17 is the prayer of an overcomer, not a victim. Too often I find my prayers are prayers of victim. Lord, help me, this person, that person, this thing, this event. This was a prayer of a victor. Uh, in fact, in, in the verse preceding the prayer, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus tells his disciples, take heart, I have overcome the world. And then he launches off into this prayer. He's not a victim. It comes down to prayer's petition, quite frankly, is an acknowledgement and a willing acceptance of submission to God's love and sovereignty. We have a hard time with that. We like things to turn out like we want them in the end. A few years ago, I was with a team of students. We were in Manila. And um, we often visit some of the slum areas and the squatters areas. And uh, meet with the people and go into some of these areas. I'll tell you, it's, you know, yeah, it, it's pretty, pretty bad as far as the, their houses, where they walk, um, what it's like, the smells. It's just over, overwhelming. And this is their life. We were called to this family um, to come and pray with them. And so we went into, uh, into their squatters area. And sometimes there's, the squatters areas are not always for <coughs> tall, larger Americans. I don't know how else to say that. Because you have to constantly duck or you have to walk. And this one, there were, there was, <laughs> I hadn't been in one like before. There were, two, there were two boards. And you just walked and you put two feet on, you know, one on each board. And they didn't, all, they didn't level anyway. It was, it was an adventure just getting to this little home. The little home is probably smaller than many of your kitchens, the whole home. And in this home was a family living there. Uh, no running water. They go out and they buy water, bring it in. Um, their, their food is, is very limited. Their income is less than $2 a day. And this little home was this little girl that they wanted us to pray for. Her name was Syra Jane. She had a heart condition, a congenital heart condition that didn't look good for her. Something about her heart was not able to pump the blood throughout her whole body. And as I looked at her, I could see, could see the, the pulse in her neck as her heart struggled. Something that here in the States, with insurance, 
could have been taken care of. Something over there, thousands of American dollars, tens of thousands of pesos since a family, quite frankly. There's no way. They could work years and years and years and not earn enough money for that little girl's operation. There's no insurance. They wanted us to pray. They wanted me to pray. So I did. I took that little girl's hand. Little blue fingers, cold. And I held them. And I prayed. God, can you save this little girl? I feel so helpless, so helpless, trusting in God's sovereignty in a situation like that. The family thanked us profusely. Went away a different person. I tell you, it changes you. Came back a few months later, got email. Sarah Jane had gone to be with her Lord. You trust God's sovereignty. He knows what he's doing. When he says he keeps us, it's by his definition. We like to make this little box what we think the world ought to be. It's much bigger than that. And it's in God's hands, not ours. Isn't that good? Because in ours, I know we'd mess it up. I would. It's in his hands. I think a prayer of faith is a prayer acknowledging and welcoming God's sovereignty. His answer is found not in some neatly packaged set of wonderful circumstances, but his answer is found in the realm of complete, obedient submission to his will. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your wonderful grace, for what you allow us, one day at a time, the air we breathe. It's all a gift from you. We recognize, we acknowledge, we submit to your sovereignty. Thank you for the prayer that you showed us. Thank you for the words of Jesus that we can read and reflect on. Thank you for the changes that it can bring about in our lives. We submit ourselves to your sovereign will. We desire nothing more than glory to God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.